Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I said there were a number of huge innovations of the 21st century. Uh, the fourth one on the list is, is the Twitch streams. They have clearly, totally uh, brought in a new, uh, in- interesting cohort of people who were not playing previously. Uh, generally, I would say I am more enthusiastic and excited about role-playing now, uh, or rather how the industry is doing now, than I have been in 15 years. So, Holy cow. And I, I think the twitches are a big part of that comprehensive detailed exhaustive and significant these words describe the incredible designers and dragons books by shannon applecline i recently finished the first one that covers the 1970s and the birth of role-playing his dedication to lifting every stone and researching every branch of the history of rpgs is a gift to anyone that loves the hobby Shannon steps us through the history of RPGs from the 70s to today. It gives you just a taste of the depth of his research and knowledge. If you have Audible, I recommend checking out the audiobook version of The Designers and Dragons. Stick around until the end. Shannon breaks down how he thinks COVID has impacted the role-playing hobby. Currently, he's working on the next generation of role-playing histories, including Lost Histories, a book on the 10s, and a series of product histories for TSR's D&D. His plan is to kickstart these various projects in the next couple of years, but anyone who wants a preview can find them at Shannon's Patreon, linked in the notes. A big thanks to some of our recent patrons, Fabian Picart, Sam Ius, Peter Thomas, and William Payne. Because of them and the 100-plus other patrons, I can bring you content each week. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Shannon. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to writer and historian Shannon Applecline. Shannon may be best known for his landmark book, Designers and Dragons. It is the definitive work on the history of the role-playing game industry. So Shannon, welcome to the third floor. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we have a common friend um, in Anthony. Uh, He's the one that connected us. And for those of you listening, that's a runeslinger who's been on the show. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been really looking forward to this because... um, as my listeners know, which I don't think I've shared with you, is um, I started gaming in, in my, you know, in my teens, like a lot of people, and um, role playing was my favorite. That's what I loved. And at the time when I was playing, uh, of course, you had D&D, you had GURPS, you had Champions, uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, those were the big, the big players at the time. And then uh, early college, I stopped, just stopped playing. And about two years ago, I started again. So there's about 25 year gap in my understanding and following of the industry. 
And um, needless to say, San, things changed over those 25 years. And uh, when Anthony told me that you might be the guy that can help uh, fill the gaps in my uh, experience there, I was looking forward to it. But what we need to first find out is your origin story. So there was a day that you knew nothing about rolling dice and pretending to be other people. And I'd like to go back to that day and then what happened next. Sure. Um, I'm not quite sure when I, I learned about role-playing for the first time. Uh, I would guess I probably saw an advertisement in a, a comic book uh, back when they were running those uh, great basic D&D comic uh, ads in uh, Marvel in particular. Yeah. Um, all I know for sure is at some point I asked my dad, hey, could I have a, a copy of this Dungeons & Dragons game? I was about 10 years old at the time. It was uh, 1982, so it was uh, right when uh, the BX uh, version was out. Um, and so my dad, uh, being a great father, uh, not, <laughs> not just got me the game, but he learned the game as much as he could, and he put together a dungeon, and he ran it for me. Uh, <laughs> and I say... He learned the game as much as he could because there was one thing that confused him, which was the combat section. He didn't quite know what to make of that. So sure. instead he said, hey, uh, you know, there's some skeletons in this room. What do you do? And uh, he described it previously and mentioned that there were rocks in the room. And so I was able to say, okay, I, I pick up a rock and I, I throw it at the skeleton. And uh, this probably came from our, our shared experience with uh, the original adventure game, the uh, Colossal Cave. Uh, and so we'd had uh, experience with, you know, fighting monsters and such without having an actual game system to back it up, just figuring out the right command. So that was my first game. Uh, I found other people uh, soon enough. And probably I should mention the other thing that was really terrific about this was he doesn't really like games. Oh, so, wow. He is father of the uh, lifetime there. So doesn't like games, gets you the games, learns it, and then introduces you to it. So you, you then, Shannon, find other people to play with. Um, obviously, was it continue, did you continue with D&D or did other games get introduced soon after? I think I continued with D&D. It's so far, long ago to, to hard to remember. But I, I vaguely recall uh, I must have been in elementary school still at the time, uh, sixth grade probably. I remember uh, uh, playing with some people on my street and the next street over, and then uh, I disappeared for a few weeks, and I came back, and they were suddenly all playing gods. That that was definitely <laughs> D&D. Um, I, I remember playing advanced Dungeons & Dragons with my uh, high school friends. I, I know I ran Temple of Elemental Evil for them. I still have a, nice. a, a folder marked up that uh, has all of the special things I used uh, for it, including a battle uh, system scenario when they let Zugdemoy out and she started gathering armies. Um, there were a few other games. Uh, I got Traveler from one of my aunts when I was wow. quite young, which was a another amazing gift because I think maybe she vaguely knew that I liked role-playing games. I certainly never asked anyone for Traveler, and so that just appeared under the Christmas tree one year. Um, I, I got Stormbringer because I love, loved and love Michael Moorcock's novels. Hawk yeah. Moon uh, played RuneQuest for, uh, that a friend brought over one day. Played James Bond 007, which was a great little action game. Ran some top secret SI. So a lot of different things from that era. 
So Shannon, a lot of times when I talk about these origin stories with creators like yourself, um, uh, it's not every time, but a lot of times there's a break, right? Uh, not quite as long as the break I took, but did you take some time off or do you, have you been pretty consistently playing games this whole time? Uh, games, yes. Uh, role-playing, mostly. I actually haven't uh, played a role-playing game for about two years at this point. but For shame. Yeah. Part of that is COVID, but just before COVID, I, I moved from the Bay Area where I'd lived for about 30 years and where my regular group was to Hawaii. And so I was just putting down roots here. Uh, and less than three months after we moved here, COVID hit. And so I hadn't gotten to the role-playing group yet. I'd, I'd gone to a, a group that did board gaming. But fairly consistent from, uh, I would say, 1980 to 2019. And uh, I have started thinking of some new game systems that I would like to get a hold of and run. Oh, well, now I've got to ask that. So what are some things that you are that are on the horizon or on your wish list right now? Yeah, well, one of the, the big problems with Designers and Dragons is that I read about these companies, I discover what it is that they do, and I am amazed by how neat and exciting it is. And so, for example, when I wrote the uh, probably second edition of Designers and Dragons, I, I ran across uh, Burning Wheel, Luke Crane's company, yeah. for the first time. And a big fan of RuneQuest uh, since college. Burning Wheel looked to me a lot like RuneQuest, which at the time wasn't in print in an edition that I particularly loved. But it had all of these new, you know, um, bits that they call them, uh, insights, traits, beliefs. Um, and I thought, wow, that sounds like a, a wonderful interaction. And so uh, after I finished writing that a few years later, I, I ran a Burning Wheel campaign. And, oh, that is a complex rule system. It is. But I loved it in the ways that I thought I would love it. That was actually the last last uh, campaign I've run at this point because that was just before I left. Uh, recently, I finished uh, writing a uh, article on a company called Necro Necrotic Gnome, who's part of the OSR. And what they've done, uh, what uh, Gavin Norman has done, is he's put out a very nice new edition of the BX rules, uh, which is called Old School Essentials. It used to be called BX Essentials, who's focuses on usability. And so the whole book is laid out in these amazing one and two page control panels, he calls them, where you just look at a page and there's all the rules on, you know, nautical adventuring. Every single of the classes is laid out on a two page spread. Wow. And, and so, I, I mean, obviously from my origins, I haven't played BX in 30, 35 years, some very long time. But I, I remembered how light and enjoyable it was I was impressed by his layout, and he's also been doing a setting called Dolman Wood, which is a, a monster-haunted fairy wood. And I thought, wow, that all sounds <laughs> great. And right now, Dolman Wood, he's kind of been preparing for a Kickstarter for years, and Old School Essentials, as far as I can tell, isn't available in the U.S. right now. Uh, he had some problems with Brexit. He had some problems with COVID-19 uh, restrictions. So I'm waiting for those to come back in. And I think in the next few months, I'm going to be willing to go into a game store again. And, you know, sometime after that, that'd be a cool thing to run. Yeah, that's cool. It's funny that you talk about that. Now you do research for the book and it, um, it, it tempts you. That's what's been happening to me with these uh, insider <laughs> insights, Shannon. Like, uh, you know, I talk to people and I talk to designers and, you know, and I'm tracking down because a lot of times I have listeners that say, hey, have you talked to this person? Or have you th th thought about this person? And I'll go start looking at them like, oh, boy, that game looks cool. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Oh, that's interesting. Cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> so I can I can sympathize with you on that. So, guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to 
sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do with Shannon. So we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to find out where he got the idea to create the Designers and Dragons book. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to Patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway... Enjoy this episode, knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So as we talked about it before the break and my listeners are tired of hearing it, um, you know, I've been doing this forensic study of the last 30 years of role playing and uh, I kept running across your book, kept running across your book. And then when I realized we had a common friend, that's when I was able to reach out to you. But I want to go back in time uh, before the uh, Designers and Dragons first edition existed. When did when were the first seeds of the idea? When did you first think I'm I might want to, like, start researching this and, and putting it down on paper? It was uh 2005 Gen Con. Um, oh, yeah. It was uh, one of just two Gen Cons I've been to. Uh, it was the second of them. And um, I was, uh, you know, I, I said I've been constantly in, in role playing since uh, 1980. I, I was going a little lighter at the time. Um, I worked uh, for Chaosium from uh, 1996 to 1998, and I came out of that a little burned out. And yeah. so I was still doing uh, one Saturday uh, morning game with my friends, but was a little on the light side. Went to uh, Gen Con 2005, and that really enthused me and uh, invigorated me in a, a couple of different ways. Um, at the same time, I was uh, running RPGNet, which uh, my boss had kind of given a safe haven for uh, and, and ended up purchasing a few years earlier. And so... These two things came together. I was always looking for what can I add to RPGNet? What what can I do to improve it? And being out at Gen Con, seeing all of these great products from all these great companies, it made me start thinking about uh, some of these products that I'd been enjoying before uh, I stopped buying. That that was really what the, the big gap was. And it was right. a big gap because I didn't make any money at Chaosium, which is <laughs> typical for the gaming industry. Yeah. And one of these big gaps was... Uh, a company called Imperium Games. They were uh, the company that uh, got the Traveler rights after GDW went under, and so they published a um, very poorly received edition of the game called Traveler 4 or T4. And 
I religiously bought every one of these poorly received products until <laughs> shortly after I started working at Chaosium. And then I had so little money uh, and I never went out to uh, Gen Con when I was working for them. So I didn't get any of the cool free trades and stuff that I didn't keep buying it. I'm not sure I kept right. buying much at the time. Um, and so seeing that Gen Con again and seeing all the stuff that had been done, the bug in my ear was, what happened to Imperium Games? And so I started researching them online. Uh, I started finding out information about them. And I said, hey, I could turn this into an online index of products, uh, uh, a way to, you know, I'm doing all this research array. Why not list out what's all there? It'll be a nice, you know, additional new content area for RPGNet. And so I yeah. spent tons of my evening and free time for months and months setting up this index, writing it. Uh, I, I don't do a lot of computer programming, but it was what I trained in at UC Berkeley. Um, and, and so I wrote up this index. I put in all of the products that Imperium Games had ever done, uh, Chaosium, who always has been one of my favorites before and after working from, and others. And along the way, I started learning about what had happened to some of these companies. And so Imperium Games, for example, I learned that there were all kinds of financial irregularities, uh, that uh, they were associated with a movie company, Sweet Pea Entertainment, that the movie company was mainly interested in trying to uh, take the IP from these games and get them into online games, movies, that sort of thing. Uh, they were the ones who eventually put out the two also poorly received Dungeons & Dr Dragons movies at the time. Yeah. <laughs> And so I thought, wow, I have all of this knowledge that I've gone from it. Something else I could do is I could write an article and, hey, that's more content that we can draw people to RPGNet for. <laughs> so I ended up putting, up, putting outside the Imperium uh, Games one for a little bit because of those financial irregularities. There were questions, what's gossip, what's real, what's, uh, what's actually responsible to report what's not. I ended up writing Wizards of the Coast first. Um, Wizards of the Coast, uh, the article got slash dotted. Uh, I spent at least one evening desperately trying to keep our machines up. I came out of this saying, wow, there's people who are interested in this. Wrote several others, and I started having publishers saying, hey, we'd like to put these into a book. And so uh, eventually uh, I, I uh, reached an agreement with Mongoose, who put out the first edition, and shortly after that went out of print, I got a new agreement with Evil Hat, who did the second edition. So what was researching it like? Was it just a matter, Shannon, of, of just, you know, going around online and trying to put all the pieces together? I'm trying to trying to imagine what the um, the the, uh, the dream board looked like um, as you're trying to kind of, you know, piece this all together. Because, I mean, a lot of this stuff that I'm discovering myself, you know, it, it's just lost in history that, you know, you'd have to dig real far. So what, what was the research process like? Uh, for most of the original books, the research process involved lots of work through magazines and products, and sometimes talking with the, the people. Um, I started off with the companies that I knew the best, uh, and so Imperium Games, that was someone I'd been familiar with, and then I was able to pull up more information. Wizards of the Coast, uh, obviously I'd seen all of the interactions on the internet as it happened, you know, as far back, not, sh not long after they uh, came into existence, they were on the early Usenet. Um, and then I started writing Chaosium and others. And so combination of personal knowledge and uh, design notes and uh, interviews and such found in uh, magazines. 
for the more recent companies, very heavy usage of the internet, and that can turn the research into those uh, into huge, extensive piles of work. Um, I bet. Yeah, I, I wrote an article on Monty Cook Games um, and uh, it, its uh, predecessor, which was Malhavak, uh, a couple of months ago. And <laughs> Monty Cook has had blogs on the internet for almost 20 years. And I read through most of them. God bless you. <laughs> there were interviews, there were podcasts. Uh, and so often with one of those, I will research it until I decide I have enough to tell a good story here. I, I hope it's everything notable. Uh, always uh, there is a through line for any history that I write, which is their product listing. And I've tried very hard never to make these histories just listings of products. Perhaps there's a few that are that are ones where there was very little information to uh, research. But I always try and uh, put that together with why do people say they're doing the things they're doing? How were they able to? What were the problems? The problems are, of course, the dragons in, in the book. Um, and increasingly, as I've written more and more and gained more knowledge on the field, how does this build into trends and tropes found in the industry as a whole? Oh, boy, we've got fun stuff to talk about, man. <laughs> yeah. I just got, got started on Designers and Dragons again last year. Oh, wow. Uh, so uh, last May, uh, I dropped off of my full-time job, which is where I'd been working for Skoda's Tech, who is is or was the owner of RPGNet. Um, and that was so I would have more time to personally write. And so last May, I started writing new histories again, and I think I've been delving deeper than ever into these companies. There are a number of histories that I have written that were ones my first time around, I thought there's no way I can find the research for that. But either I've been able to get copies of magazines, which have great information, or uh, in a few copies, uh, in a few cases where there were uh, no interviews or anything ever in the written record, I actually managed to, 30 or 40 years later, get a hold of the people, email, phone call, and get some information on the company and those important you know, decisions and such that go beyond the published record. Um, I've been shocked, um, Shannon, as I've been, you know, dealing with the industry myself, as I've been putting together these interviews, um, just how generous people are. Uh, and, and, and like, I've been shocked at people, people not saying no to me. <laughs> I'm saying, Hey, yeah. do you want to come on my podcast? They're like, sure, let's find a time. And I'm like, Oh, okay. That sounds great. <laughs> it's, um, it's incredible. I'd be curious though, of, of two things, Shannon, first off, um, <sighs> What's driving you to do all of this? Uh, it sounds like, you know, you, you you started, you know, small and just kind of piecing things together. Then you, you know, go about putting out the entire book, continuing writing. Now you've gone back to what it looks like as a new focus. Is there what what is what's inside you that's pushing you uh, to, to do this, do you think? Well, I, I could not live a unproductive life. I am constantly working on something. Uh, the designers and Dragon's histories, I enjoy. I, I think that's the, the fundamental thing. It's exciting and fun to me to find out what happened with these, his, with these companies and to uh, write about it. Um, I enjoy being able to share it with other people and to kind of get it codified and recorded so that we do not lose the history. Yeah. But, I mean, fundamentally, it's because it's fun and enjoyable. 
That's good because it takes up a little bit of your time, it sounds like. (laughs) So I guess the next thing I'm wondering about is a little bit of before and after. Um, So as you've gone through and you've delved into this, um, there's what you knew before, what you knew in the middle and, you know, what you know now. And I'd be curious if there's what what are some of the revelations, things that you discovered that surprised you the most? I think um, as you've talked about your extended gap in role playing, and I did, I've never had an extended gap like that, but I feel like the vast majority of role players, their systems that they use, the worlds that they enjoy, I feel like those stop at a certain point. And so if, if you'd said it to me, I would, I would agree with that, and I'd say it, it would mostly be the games that were out by about 1990 or so. Uh, 1989 is when I started going to college. I was introduced or reintroduced to a number of new games at that period. And still, my favorites are, you know, Ars Magica, which is 1987, Pendragon, which is 1985, you know, BXD&D, which is 1981, RuneQuest, which is 1978. It's kind of all in that era. And so one of the things that uh, the Designers and Dragons books did is they gave me a real appreciation for everything that has come after. An understanding of the trends, an understanding of why they're great. Um, But I'd also say beyond that, that it's not just, hey, that's newer, but there's things that previously I tried and didn't like, Mm. um, and so never tried again. I remember going over to a friend's house sometime I was young, and he wanted to play Robotech or the Palladium system or one of those interrelated ones. And my eyes just glazed over at this mega damage and uh, these uh, plain black and white books with very, um, very utilitarian design. But in actually writing the history of Palladium, I became so much more impressed by, hey, what an amazing creator and innovator. And, you know, I'd almost say, you know, role-playing creative genius Kevin CMBD is. And so right. e- even for those things that were kind of within my era where I was learning new games, I-, I can see neat, exciting new things from those. So I just say overall across, one thing I think I've discovered is almost every company I write about, I fall in love with just a little bit. And so I can see that that bit of creativity, that you know, bit of setting, that cool game system, yeah. whatever it is that excites everyone so much. And as I said, you know, I, I want to play a lot of those. Uh, another one that I didn't mention earlier was uh, I wrote about Freya Lingen last year, the Free League, who is one of the Swedish companies who's come to such prominence in the tens. And uh, wow, every one of their game systems sounded amazing. You're talking to a huge fanboy. I just just <laughs> discovered them, and I am chewing through their games. And I, I've yet to run into something where I've, I've been anything but impressed. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, and if you haven't started like actually playing some of their games, it um, I, I've discovered because not all some games you can you can read Shannon. And I think get a good grasp of it, right? Like with your experience that you go into it with other games, you read and then you play it, and there's a whole other thing happening in play that that doesn't come through in the rules. And I'm discovering that with free leagues, um, with free leagues stuff there. Um, now, as far as uh, a second edition, it sounds like that that was just a situation where the first edition went out of print. And did you approach Evil Hat or Evil Hat approached you? Uh, I, I was in a very fortunate situation, which is one of the principals of Evil Hat ran the game store that I regularly attended in Oakland, which was in in game, sadly gone now. Um, that that was Chris Hanrahan, and so Chris, 
had been really excited and interested in the book. Uh, I, I think he was kind of sad that it had ended up with Mongoose. And when my uh, option to retrieve it came back from Mongoose, he'd long said, hey, if you ever want to print it again, talk to us. And so I said, hey, is that still true? He said, yes. And I grabbed the uh, option back, uh, got the book back and handed it off to Evil Had and then ended up expanding it considerably. Well, for that and that was going to be my next question is um, what uh, what were the big what's the differences? So if I if I <laughs> spent a considerable amount of money and tracked down first the first edition of your book um, and then compared it to the second edition, what are the changes or what are the additions? Um, so. I'm not sure I can totally answer that question. I can partially answer it. Sure, do but, the best you can. <laughs> uh, if you look at the introductions to the second edition, everyone actually says what's added. But the big change was the first one was a big monolithic edition. And then somehow when working out the second edition, we decided A, it needed to be multiple books, and B, wouldn't it be great to break the multiple books into decades? Uh, and the way it's arranged is so that each decade covers the entire history of companies who started in that decade. And so, for example, the 70s has uh, uh, TSR, who uh, was there from 1974, 1973, uh, to 1997. Uh, and so it has their complete story, even though it's in the 70s. And, right. and the 70s has 13 other, uh, 12 other uh, s- similar company histories. And so what I did was I, I took all of my original ones, I-, I plopped them all out into these different ones, and uh, I had a goal of uh, 120,000 to 140,000 words for each book, and so at that point, I looked and said, how short am I on each of these? And uh, the Odd Odds book got considerable expansion um, because, among other things, the first edition, I think we were just barely into the uh, tens when it came out. Um, and so we hadn't really seen anyone. And so I wrote, I don't know, half a dozen or more uh, indie company uh, uh, com- histories for the uh, second edition. I don't think there were any indie company histories in the original. Uh, For the 70s, I I found I needed a little more content. And so I looked at some of the uh, smaller companies who were doing uh, various D&D supplements. And so I got like Daystar West Media in that new edition, which was the very small company that put out uh, uh, the Hickman's original adventures, Pharaoh. Um, And uh, I also... Did, you know, just a few other smaller companies. Grimoire Games might have started in that one. I don't remember for sure who did Arduin. And so I just tracked through each one. I said, what do I need to, to fill each out to somewhere in that uh, uh, page length? The Odd Ots actually ended up closer to 140,000 words at the very top of it because there was just so much I found to write about. One, one of those, I think it was the 90s, I only added one history to. Um, but most of the others have two, three, four, or in the case of the Odd Ots, a considerable amount. And of course, for any uh, companies that were still in existence, I needed to go through and update their histories for the present day because there was, I don't know, three, four years between the editions. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So guys, what we're going to do is we're going to um, have Shannon read his entire book. Now, what we're going to do is take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I've kind of broken it, this down into segments as well. And obviously, this is not going to be nearly as detailed and um, as engaging as, as Shannon's book. But I do want to try to uh, get Shannon's take um, on the through line um, from the 70s all the way through the aughts and now. So we'll take a quick break and let's talk about what was happening in the 70s and 80s. We'll be right back. You like science fiction, right? 
love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. So uh, for most people, you know, they believe TSR was the first um, and Dungeon of Dragons was the first. And I guess my first question is, is, is that the case? Uh, arguably, yes. Yeah. You, you could certainly go through and look at early games, many of which were related to the creation of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Blackmore is the big one. And say, wow, those were maybe role-playing games before D&D. Anytime I write the histories, I feel like I always have to say, this is the mass market one. This is the one that popularized this idea. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons was, you know, the first one in print in any case. Um, people were certainly doing some role playing at tables before that. But D&D, January 1974, definitely the start of our story and how it got there. So I'd be interested if we if we were if I were to go to college and take a course on you know, role playing games in the seventies. What do you think the course outline would look like? What do you think are the major touch points? Obviously, TSR and, and Dungeons and Dragons and Gygax are are the, are the beginning of that. Um, and if I were to go through the seventies before we get to the eighties, what do you think would be the major touch points of that course? So the the main uh, trend of the seventies was people supplementing or reacting to Dungeons and Dragons in various ways. So the biggest thing you saw at the very start were people coming out with their own adventures uh, for Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Palace of the uh, Vampire Queen was the very first one, uh, and moving on from there to Judges Guild, and of course TSR eventually got into the act as well. Um, you also had a really shocking number of people who their origin story in the field is I looked at Dungeons and Dragons, I thought it was horrible, it didn't make any sense, and so I had to write my own. <laughs> the original D&D books were hard to parse if you didn't have someone teaching you. They were obviously full of amazing ideas. Right. And so the very first of those was Tunnels and Trolls. Ken mm -hmm. St. Andre, he 
did exactly what I said, which is he got D&D, it didn't make sense to him, and so he started designing his own game, which was Tunnels and Trolls. He, you know, sold a few copies of it at a local con. He met Rick Loomis, who was the president of Flying Puffalo, who was mostly involved with play-by-mail games, one of the various industries that role-playing ate. And he got Tunnels and Trolls out to a bigger audience. So I think right there you have the first couple of stories, the supplements uh, and the games that were very direct relations. After that, you started, you, you got any number of games and supplements that continued to do that, the vast majority of the field. But you also started to widen out a little more and to uh, start to meet the things that were reacting to Dungeons & Dragons in a more... Uh, innovative way, in a way that was further away from D&D itself. And uh, I think I would place the next big touchstone as Traveler, uh, Mark Miller, GDW. And that was a game that said, hey, it doesn't have to all be about fantasy. Not, not the first one. You know, we had Starfaring from Ken St. Andre also and a couple of others that were earlier. But Traveler, again, I like to say mass market popularized. Traveler was the one that popularized the science fiction genre and the fact that, you know, Mongoose is right now publishing their second edition of Traveler uh, 45 years later, I think speaks entirely for its success. Yeah. Uh, and one of the other big uh, popularizations that appeared in Traveler was a skill system. Uh, we'd had those as far back as Empire of the Petal Throne, which, you know, would have gone on my list of huge milestones if it weren't for the fact that it's just never quite got that mass market attention that I think it deserves in the industry. Um, but Traveler, again, was one of those ones that really made this idea of skills popular. And one of the other things that it did, which was very amazing, not quite as successful, but really showed how innovative what they were thinking is, it doesn't have any type of experience system in it. It's one of the very few role-playing games where that's been the case, where there really isn't a way to better your characters other than equipment and stuff. But that was just, you know, Mark Miller and other people GDF, GDW really looking at the role-playing field in a different way and saying it does not have to all follow the same trends and tropes as uh, uh, D&D did. I think, I'd, I think I'd note one other milestone in the 70s, um, and this might just be my personal bias, but it was one of the big three to four games at the time, and that's RuneQuest from Chaosium. Yeah. And I think RuneQuest was notable because it went to the fantasy genre, which D&D did, but it in no way looks like D&D. Uh, you know, it's a skill-based system like Traveler is, uh, except it has experience and other things that you'd expect. Uh, it's a Bronze Age game instead of the kind of D&D uh, trope, which is kind of medieval, kind of not. Um, but it was a very different setting. And one of the most innovative and interesting things is it looked at gods in a different way. You know, this was still two years before deities and demigods came out and kind of made gods into high-level monsters, which was generally how they were being seen by the audience at the time. And instead, the cults, as they tend to be called in RuneQuest, they're all about how do I create this, you know, relationship with this, you know, greater being. It's kind of what the clerics and D&D were really intended to be, but, right. you know codified, specified. And of course, the other really amazing thing about RuneQuest, and the, one of the reasons I've fallen in love with it over the years, is the setting of Glorantha. Uh, I, I think safe to say one of the most innovative settings out there uh, 
for fantasy games. Again, one of the few I put up against it is Tecumel, which is the setting of Empire of the Petal Throne. But again, Tecumel's just never got quite the uh, mass market attention it deserves. So I, I would say those are the big trends of, of the 70s. So I'm not super familiar with RuneQuest. Obviously, I've heard of RuneQuest. I've seen RuneQuest. I've read about RuneQuest. I've never played it. So I'd be interested, when you consider the settings uh, as innovative, why is that? What makes that, what makes that setting innovative? RuneQuest Glorantha uh, is very much about society uh, and culture. Uh, many of the early uh, publications were dungeons. Uh, it, it kind of, Ballister's Barracks was one of the first. But um, it was about these cultures, these societies, these people. I mean, D&D Adventures, they, they don't have societies about them, but the, the Arlanthi of uh, Glorantha, they're very much about community and eating your community, and that's become increasingly true over the years. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Glorantha was one of the first uh, settings that really had, I don't know if I quite want to say metaplot, because it's never been addressed as metaplot, but it had these events that were happening. There's the Lunar Empire in the north uh, who are people who either worship chaos or have uh, uh, used chaos to the benefit of normal good people, depending on who you ask. And they, <laughs> they are invading down into the Arlanthi lands. Uh, we are on the edge of something called the Hero Wars. Uh, Arlanth is fighting the Red Goddess. Uh, if he can survive uh, the Lunar Empire, you know, beating down his warship. Uh, and when we started to learn more about it, the cults were very detailed. They created this entire mythology of before time, which is crucially important to the modern day, because another thing that was very innovative is RuneQuest, integra uh, RuneQuest integrated mythology in a way that few no other games have because you can actually go on things called hero quests repeat the uh mythical journeys of your uh heroes possibly even go offline and do something entirely amazing um and so uh, what one other thing i think that was really innovative that appeared fairly early on is we not just the myths but also a lot of the uh different peoples we got really detailed really um believable uh, kind of secondary world creation about them. Troll Pack was one of the first ones that came out. It looked at, you know, these people, the trolls, and the, they're not monsters exactly. Uh, right. In RuneQuest, they're, they're playable character races. Uh, they can eat anything. Uh, they have all kinds of weird characteristics that let you uh, uh, play them as these entirely alien yet believable people. And uh, I've actually been working on for many ages, content on the Aldriami, which are the uh, elves of uh, RuneQuest. Uh, and I, I've been working on various books on and off through various publishers. There's one out through Mongoose, and I'm working on one for Chaosium right now, um, that similarly tries to approach them as, how are these very detailed, totally alien people that you could still come to an understanding of and hopefully have an amazing role-playing experience with? So I, I think all of these, much of it circles around a secondary world creation that is very deep, very believable, and that integrates fully with your play. It's fascinating to me, Shannon, because, you know, 
all of that seems obvious now, right? But <laughs> but it, 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 there had to have been the first time it happened and the first yeah. time that there was that much thought put into it. So that's that's incredible. So now that I've got a sense for the 70s from a game perspective, right, and from a, a innovation within gaming, I wonder if you were able to pick up a sense of kind of the arc in the 70s of the communities, the people playing it. So was there a big change at all? Um, or was it the same people that really got started playing this, were playing it at the end of the 70s? And were they p- people still playing these games the same way? Or had, had who plays and how we play change over that period? I think when you uh, started, obviously you started with wargaming players because those were the initial communities in uh, both Lake Geneva and the Twin Cities. And so they were certainly approaching it with a very... Uh, combative uh, way uh, methodology very much the GM versus the players but in a fair way Um, certainly uh, the early games were very comparatively open you did not have the dense rule sets and so they were much more about GM I'm not quite sure I want to say GM fiat but very much GM being able to openly rationally and fairly make decisions uh, without having to look up every single modifier. Um, 1977, you got Basic Dungeons & Dragons by J. Eric Holmes, and I think that was probably what started to change things. Uh, I should jump back and say, after the war gamers, the first people who came into the community were the college gamers. Those, those were where it spread uh, initially. And uh, the various Basic Dungeons & Dragons games, of which the Holmes edition was the first, I think they were the ones that started to push the age down. Uh, And we wouldn't fully see that until we got to the 80s when two more things would happen, one of which was the BX rules, which we've already touched on, and the other is the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. Oh, right. Yeah, so between those two, you started getting uh, people playing younger and younger into, like me, elementary school by 1982. And so there was certainly this huge uh, shift in the demographic who was playing. Now, how much did those games in the 70s, 74 to 79 go beyond the dungeon crawls and such? I'm not sure there was a lot, but they were kind of defining this art of play. And you did have things like uh, uh, the city-state of the Invincible Overlord out from Genji's Guild, so you were clearly getting into urban environments. Right. Uh, Village of Hamlet out for uh, uh, D&D, which again... Urban environment, but connected to the dungeon of the moat house. So you were starting to spread out a little from this very open environments, very locale based, uh, and a lot of that meant dungeons. Very interesting. So as now as we move into the eighties, um, we're seeing the the age drop a little bit, right? We're seeing younger and younger people playing it, being exposed to the games. I would also imagine we're now starting to move into. The people that played the games are now starting to create the games, right? So it's not it's not a necessarily a second generation of creations, but the first derivative, right? So I, I played this and I've started now I'm gonna start creating it. So as we move into the eighties, what do you think was really kind of the first major milestone um, as we move into the eighties? I would say the first major milestone, nineteen eighty one, a couple of big games come out that repeat what GDW did with Traveler and say, hey, we can do role-playing games in our own genres. We do not have to be totally derivative of of D&D. We do not have to be fantasy-based. Fantasy does not define role-playing. And so one of those was Champions, uh, which, again, not the first superhero role-playing game that that was uh, super 
Superhero 2044, Superworld 2044, whatever it was exactly. Um, Villains and Vigilantes had put out a lot of products first, but again, Champions was the one that uh, really caught people's attention. Uh, And the other one, same year, Call of Cthulhu. And Call of Cthulhu, you know, not only was the first really notable horror role-playing game, but it was just dripping with a very, you know, evocative theming that really suggested gaming in a very specific way that, you know, high, high character death rate, almost said high player death rate, <laughs> that. Uh, high character death rate, you know, campaigns were implicitly limited as a result. It was a very different type of play. Uh, you did have high character death rates in early D&D games, but it was felt totally different from the arc kills you to you go mad at, at seeing, you know, the uh, appendage of Great Cthulhu. <laughs> or reading a book. <laughs> or just reading a book. How embarrassing is that? So I'd be curious because, I mean, I remember Chill was my first horror game that I had come across. Um, yeah. But I will never forget the first time playing Call of Cthulhu because it, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. I was like, wow, like this is this is not what I've been doing, <laughs> right? Even Chill. Well, it was very different from Chill. Um, but what I don't have a sense of because of my age and I haven't done uh, nearly the amount of homework you have is was Call of Cthulhu a hit out of the gate or was it a slow burn? You know, I'm not sure I could a hundred percent tell you that. My intuition says it was a hit out of the gate. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of Chaosium's history, Call of Cthulhu has been, you know, the only, you know, great, great game. When I was working there from 1996 to 1998, that was almost all I worked on. That was almost all we were producing. We were producing the Mythos card game, CCGs, we'll get to there. Um, RuneQuest was in purgatory because it had been kind of sort of sold off to Avalon Hill. And so most other eras, it's been the, the biggest game there. I think it caught on pretty quickly. Did it, yeah. Now, one thing that I have discovered, and I did not know this, and um, it, it came from talking to uh, Sandy um, about this and made me realize this, is that it's huge in Japan, um, much bigger. And so from my understanding, the biggest game in, in, in Eclipse's Dungeons & Dragons to this day in Japan, um, did you come across that or uh, get any kind of insight on why that is? Uh, I, not, not generally. I've seen some of the Call of Cthulhu products from Japan, Gorgeous. I know it has attention there. I hadn't heard previously bigger than D&D. I can believe it. Uh, Chasium has been very well received in foreign countries. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to me. And Sandy had some interesting insights on it um, that I thought was fascinating. And he just was happy to tell people that he was big in Japan because he thought that sounded <laughs> cool. <laughs> so after Call of Cthulhu, um, which I would imagine changed a lot of things um, and, and how people thought about that, um, what's next um, as we go through the 80s? What, what do you think was the next big thing? I think the next big thing was uh, some of the stuff that TSR was producing. Uh, It's what I called the Hickman Revolution. Uh, And it was the production of kind of a series of adventures there. Ravenloft was the first. uh, And then it was followed by the Desert of Desolation series. uh, And then it was Dragonlance. And these uh, products, 1983, 1984, 5, 6, they literally revolutionized the way that people thought about adventures. Before, the main focus of adventuring was locale-based. It was... We go into a dungeon, we go into a wilderness, we go into a city. Kind of sandboxy, not always. Definition of sandboxy is a a little open to what that means. But it gives the general idea. 
open adventures, uh, you know, not stories. And Ravenloft was heavily focused on a character, Strahd. And that, that was an innovation. It was still a sandbox, very much a sandbox. It's all about, you know, wandering this castle uh, and being terrified by Strahd and maybe eventually fighting him successfully. And similarly, when you move on to the Desert of Desolation adventures, they were still very much sandboxes. They're full of these beautiful, what, uh, what Hickman calls architectural dungeons that, <laughs> you know, have these gorgeous interconnections between the levels, usually isometric uh, uh, maps, um, and these heavy stories behind them. I mean, uh, in uh, the Desert of Desolation, there was this big fight between this Afrit and this Dijin, which was kind of underlying everything. There was a deep history about, you know, who these tombs belonged to, how that related to the modern day. It was creating narrative focus. And then we get to Dragonlance, and Dragonlance... Yeah. Uh, Certainly uh, uh, a big uh, inflection point in gaming. Some people hated what it created. Mm -hmm. Many people, you know, loved the stories. But it was a 12-part story over, you know, 12 adventures where you took on the role of existing characters for the first time ever. And you, uh, you know, told the story. And there were still sandboxes there. There were still dungeons. Often you were pushed in certain directions. Um, but there was this big epic conclusion, and it totally set how adventures were written across almost all of uh, the industry for at least twenty years. I mean, I think wow. we've started to step away from the step away from the stories and look more into uh, narratives in the tens, uh, more into sandboxes, more into locales in the tens. But still, those narratives—they're—they're they're much of the core of gaming. For the people that didn't like that, because um, I mean, I think about when I was leaving gaming and it was all, it was all Dragonlance. That's what that was everything. And um, and I'll never forget getting my first edition of Ravenloft. Um, and the, you said the isometric maps like I can see the isometric castle and, and I would just pour over it. And it was just an amazing thing. Um, and then, you know, Dragonlance was everything um, as, as, as I was leaving uh, role playing. Um, and I, I guess I wasn't aware of the pushback on it. What, what drove the pushback? The people that hated it? Uh, it was the idea that they were being told what to do, yeah. uh, that they were not having the free choice in the adventures, that they were not the same open adventures that they were previously. And it's not entirely clear to me how much of that pushback actually occurred at the time. I'm sure there Mm. was some, uh, but no internet, you know, there's no way really to get together with the other like people. Uh, I feel like we, I started seeing more of the pushback in the nineties. And by that time we had Metaplot uh, being a, used in almost every gaming line to advance stories across multiple supplements. Some people were getting tired of that by the mid-90s. And then jumping ahead once more to the odd-odds, we had the OSR, which we'll get to. And they really said, no, that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in, you know, the fundamental first decade uh, way that uh, stories, uh, adventures were being written. And so that has caused really positive pushback because by that point, we're, we're in the internet age and they can say, we don't like that. We like these things and we can produce new versions of it. And they have. Right. And so now today we have all of it available, which is, you know, the most wonderful, amazing thing. No sort of role playing uh, among those types is wrong. So 
yeah. you know, it's great to have all of them. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, where does the satanic panic start to, to brew up? When do we start to see that happening? Uh, 1980. Uh, we, we start having the satanic uh, panic because of the, uh, you know, kid who was theoretically lost in the sewers uh, uh, in 1979, 1980. Uh, and so that was really what got things rolling. You know, that wasn't happened at all. He just, you know, college got too much for him. He took off. And, you know, there was a private investigator, William Deere, I think, who went way overboard in what he thought was going on. A little bit, yeah. So that 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 was the, the first thing, uh, the, uh, the Egbert incident. And shortly after that, uh, we got Mazes and Monsters on TV, which was a dramatization of, of the whole steam tunnel incident. And I think that probably did a lot to get people upset. Uh, and then we did start getting the religious right uh, speaking out against it. Uh, the moral minorities, what the phrase I usually use when talking about them. Sure. It wasn't a, a large number of people. But I do know when I was gaming in high school, so late 80s, uh, one of my, uh, two of my friends who I gamed with had to sneak out of the house to game. Uh, yeah. Because they're, they were a, uh, you know, strong Mormon family. They, you know, went out and uh, after uh, high school did their missions. Their parents didn't, th- thought, bought into these, you know, false theories of satanic panic. So pretty much it was the story of the 80s, you know, starting very early on, continuing on. Uh, Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons was another one that got a lot of attention from someone who, you know, falsely thought that her son's death was the result of Dungeons and Dragons. And so you got all of these kind of uh, piling one on top of the other. But it was just the, you know, newest scapegoat uh, that people had. It was rock and roll before that. It was computer games after that. Uh, it's probably the internet now. It was probably rap somewhere in between. Yep. And so I hear a lot, you know, when I'm, when I, as as I've been talking to people and delving into these history, Shannon, there's, you know, the, obviously the subject comes up, right. Of the satanic panic. And a lot of the designers that I talk to now, that's what they were doing was sneaking away and, and playing games. What I don't hear talked about is when it, when it went away um, or how it went away. Do you have a sense of that when it just became not a non-factor, when, when people didn't have to sneak out of the house, when it wasn't the focus and the scapegoat, or did that just peter out on its own? I think it mostly petered out on its own. I, I think you could pretty clearly say that it was gone by the 90s because the 90s, we started to get games that, you know, might have had reason to cause offense <laughs> to people, you know, yeah. as opposed to the games of the 70s and 80s, which in general, you know, if people found offense with them, it's because they were looking for it. Because they were looking for it. So, well, that's it, a fantastic... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I went to college, you know, in 89. And so, you know, anything I might have seen at that more familial level, totally gone. Uh, I saw people in college who were fully independent. And so obviously they weren't sneaking out. They, you know, weren't hiding what they were doing. And, you know, the year before it, I'd still seen my friends sneaking out. So there was kind of that gap for me where I can't tell quite what happened. But that's around when it faded. Yeah. And, and I think that you, you know, brought up a good point, which is it seems like that that target is always on something uh, and it shifts. Right. It, I remember um, uh, Al Gore's wife there and, you know, the music and stuff. It just it shifts and moves and something else becomes the reason why, you um, people have a hard time parenting their kids but um let's do this let's uh, that actually gives us a perfect transition so let's take a quick break and let's move into the 90s and the aughts we'll be right back 
This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS. What kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. So we kind of hinted at it, Shannon, that, you know, things start to change in the 90s. Um, and I've got a sneaking suspicion what's coming here, but I want to talk about it. So as we as we do that transition and you're you and I are both in college at the time um, and we're now quickly approaching when uh, Rumpelstiltskin Shipman went to sleep and stopped <laughs> stopped playing. So I'd be curious, what was what was the big thing uh, early 90s or the transition into the 80s and 90s in your mind? Well, I can tell you personally at college, I, I got to college in 1989. And one of the first games that was put down in front of me was this fantasy magician playing role-playing game called Ars Magica uh, by two totally unknown designers. One of them's name is Jonathan Tweet. The other is Mark Reinhagen. I, I thought it was an amazing game. Uh, I've written for the line. I, my first big source book was for them, which was the Roman Tribunal. Um, but I don't think it would have caught most people's attention. It, it did do many very interesting things, one of which was to say, hey, you know, you don't have to have this uh, traditional uh, methodology of one DM uh, and a bunch of players, each with one character. You can have the DM roles shift around. You can have people, different characters. They call it troop-style role-playing. It's unfortunately gone de-emphasized edition by edition since then. But it was this, you know, huge, you know, change for me, this idea that uh, games don't have to be like D&D, even in really fundamental areas like that. So, Ars Magic was 1987. It was on the other side of this divide. You get up to 1990s, and the two principals of uh, Ars Magica, Jonathan Tweed and Mark Reinhagen, both go in their own directions, and they each make some of the most innovative and uh, ultimately uh, games that have real impact in the industry. The one that I'm sure you've been waiting for is 1991. White Wolf comes out with Vampire the Masquerade. And Vampire the Masquerade... We've talked about how some of the other games, you know, have made us look at gaming in different ways, and particularly how uh, the uh, Dragonlance Adventures did. Vampire the Masquerade totally pulls the carpet out from gaming. This is not locale-based adventuring. This isn't even really narrative-based adventuring. This is social-based adventuring. You know, it's about interactions with other people, and, you know, maybe you get to go off and you know, run around and fight with some werewolves or, or whatever. But a lot of it's about polit- politicking and manipulation and just other very social things. And it becomes very obvious as we start to see the LARPs on this, the first of which is just the masquerade. And we start to see a real infusion of women into the hobby, which had always been, you know, a small minority before. Important. Uh, some very important designers, Lee Gold is is the always my touchstone is for 1975 she starts the uh, you know most important publication in role playing at the time which was alarms and excursions wow um, i don't think i realized that yeah that's uh in appa and so uh it had many people contributing content 
just vast numbers of designers have gone through it over the years, and it is still published today. Since, you know, 1975, it has missed, you know, one month, maybe six or seven times. Amazing. Yeah. But 1991, we get Vampire the Masquerade. It totally changes the concept of gaming, the concept of adventures. It offers a uh, gaming system which has a fairly innovative mechanic, by which I mean the dice pools, and I only say fairly innovative because we'd seen it before in Shadowrun, and then it was uh, pulled over. But I, I do think the World of Darkness games, of which Vampire was the first, are the ones that really you know, start making everyone think, hey, we should do dice pools. Uh, so you know, if there was an element of gaming that could be changed by a new game, it, it was mostly changed by Vampire the Masquerade. And one of the most amazing things about Vampire the Masquerade story is that Okay, first we start seeing a game every year from them. Uh, you know, Werewolf, uh, Mage, uh, Changeling, and uh, Wraith. And uh, n- no one had done anything like that before. You know, we, we'd had GURPS. That was, you know, something we missed back in the 80s. Is kind of the first really mass-market universal system. Uh, but here's someone that's, you know, innovating their house system every year. They mm-hmm. start doing it again for historic games afterwards to less success. They, as many people have realized since, discover it's very hard to to maintain that many lines. But we hit 1997. TSR basically goes out of business. And there's at least one month where the World's, World of Darkness games are the best-selling role-playing games in the industry. It's because D&D is not available in new products. But that has never happened before in, at that point, 20, uh, over 20 years of gaming history. And so... You know, an, an amazing evolution and expansion and growth of just about everything you could say about that game. So that's the big one. Now, on the other hand, we have Jonathan Tweet. Uh, he is uh, by 1992 working with Atlas Games uh, and uh, Atlas Games, who kind of spun out of Lion Rampant, who was the company that put out Ars Magica, um, and uh, he. Uh, Jonathan Tweet has uh, been uh, looking more at these indie games. Um, they didn't call them indie games at the time, but we had, starting with 1985 at least, uh, King Arthur Pendragon, which was, yep. most people consider that uh, Greg Stafford's you know, greatest work, Clarantha or, or King Arthur Pendragon. It, it's a coin flip. And the thing that was really innovative about King Arthur Pendragon is it was one of the first games to really heavily focus on designing a game around a particular milieu, uh, in this mm. case, Arthurian uh, mythology. And so Greg created a game that, uh, you know, just everything about it was, you know, how can we create Arthurian play? How can we tell Arthurian stories? It had uh, mental uh, statistics and um, social characteristics of, of various times, uh, you know, whether someone was chaste or lustful, um, whether someone had honor, uh, whether someone hated a specific uh, type of people like the Picts or the Saxons or the Angles. Um, and so that was kind of the start of um, indie storytelling. It's hard to choose the words because they weren't really picked yet. And so uh, right. we get that and Jonathan Tweed comes out with Over the Edge in 1992. Never a huge seller, but a game that was hugely uh, influential to the people that have created the uh, 
indie revolution, which we'll see in the uh, odd odds. Um, you know, it was set in a little uh, mid Middle Eastern country. It was kind of conspiratorial uh, organizations doing secret things. It's never quite... I've read through a couple of the editions, and I've never quite been able to internalize it uh, fully. But it was another of these games, building on the same ideas as King Arthur Pendragon, that really said, hey, we're going to create a game system around a very specific idea. And, you know, it, it was kind of the counter to the GURPS uh, idea right. of Universal. And, and the other thing that he did that was very amazing for how early he did was he had uh, totally free farm skills, uh, characteristics, attributes, whatever you want to call them, you know, you decide your character wanted to do something. And so you wrote that down and that was what they could do. And then the, you know, game master could arbitrate based on what you'd written there, but it was free farm. It was story. It was, it was narrative. It was, it was character. And so kind of you get from Ars Magica, those two things, at the very start of the decade, and they really start to innovate how gaming is going to occur from that point on. And then one year later, 1993, you get the other big innovation, which isn't quite as um, helpful to role-playing in general, which is Magic the Gathering. Um, and so that suddenly takes all of the oxygen out of the room, The starts making it a lot harder for new role-playing games to get footholds, causes a lot of role-playing games to uh, kind of fade away a little bit because their publishers are suddenly uh, working on these CG CCGs, which make lots more money. And then by the end of the decade, the same publishers are learning they can cost lots more money too, and they're going out of business. But that dramatically changes things, perhaps for the better. It's why I was able to start working for Chaosium because they had money to hire new people, but yeah, not always because it really impacted what you could uh, do at that time. Oh, I should mention, if we're talking about kind of the foundation of indie games, the one other thing that's really notable in that uh, even before Over the Edge is Amber Diceless role-playing. Mm. Er Eric Wedgsick. And it was one of the first games to really step away from dice as a uh, arbitration methodology. I, I, it's totally diceless. It you know, usually is mostly just about storytelling and looking at absolute values that people have in relation to each other. But it was a really big change in another one of these early games uh, like King Arthur Pendragon, like Over the Edge, that say we can design games in different ways. Yeah, it um it's funny because you know the, there's the games that were big and then there's the games that I keep having brought up by designers, people that are mm -hmm. making games today, what they talk about and uh it's many of the ones you talk about Shadowrun is a game that is brought up all of the time. Um yeah. saying you know that, that a lot of the people that are making games today they instead of fondly talking about their D and D campaigns, they talk about Shadowrun fondly and and what an impact that game was for them. Um, that's fascinating. So now during all of this time, um, you know, and, and it, White Wolf was putting out all of these all of these games, um, really making a huge splash. The biggest splash, and correct me if I'm wrong here, biggest splash we've seen since really D and D and and Call of Cthulhu. Right, this was the next biggest biggest thing in the industry. Where did we see the the White Wolf influence within the industry itself? Um, did we see a huge reaction to that? Either people saying, this is how we're going to want to do things more like White Wolf does, or a reaction the other way, where people are saying, this is not how I want to role play, and this is my answer to it. Yeah, uh, I would say biggest thing since D&D. Not even D&D and Call of Cthulhu. Just if you were going to look at two points in the industry where things changed, those were them. Yeah. Um, 
I think uh, Vampire, uh, The Whole World of Darkness, um, maybe you saw some darkening of stories in the industry a bit. Um, I, I mean, certainly when you get to some of the innovative later games, Deadlands, uh, um, that's surely something that, besides the fact that he came up with the idea by looking at a cover for one of the vampire supplements, um, I think just its particular tone would not have come about if not for uh, uh, vampire. And, and certainly by the end of the decade, you get some people leaving uh, White Wolf and starting games of their own, the most notable of which I think is Fading Suns, uh, which was kind of hey, uh, what if we had a science fiction game that had the same dark world, world of darkness, galaxy of darkness feel? Um, but I actually think that uh, uh, White Wolf was more influential in some of the ideas that they created for publication. Uh, mm. I, there are two of them, I think. One of them I've mentioned a few times, which is Metaplot. Metaplot is this idea that uh, you have a story that you advance through publications. And so... You know, a year later, two years later, you've explained how the world has changed through all of these supplements, and the world has changed and different. Um, and that was fairly broadly uh, adopted for at least a few years. Wow. Um, they weren't quite the first one. No one's ever yep. quite the first. You right. know, when uh, Mega Traveler came out from GDW, that started advancing a meta plot of its own that, you know, the whole Imperium was falling apart, there was a war being fought, and... Uh, every supplement you'd learn how the war was going but certainly white wolf popularized it uh, and the other one which we haven't really touched on is splat books and mm. white wolf put out these huge piles of publications uh, they divided all of their various peoples uh, into houses clans uh, whatever you want to call them and then they'd publish a book on each of those uh, idea that came straight from Mars Magic as it happens, which had the uh, various houses of magic that all of the characters were a part of. Uh, Ars Magica never put out a splat book like White Wolf later did. They they did an individual book called uh, The Houses of Hermes, Ardor of Hermes, Houses of Hermes. I think they both were both published. Um, but again, splat books became very popular. D&D was doing it at the same time. Those were the PHBR series, the complete Bard's Handbook, The Complete Fighter's right. Handbook, whatever. But again, White, White Wolf was right in there, and I think they were the ones that were the major influencers there. So I'd say those were the two big ones. A little bit of darkening, a little bit of darker stories. Some, some companies that clearly would not have been created if not for having these ideas in the air. So we move into the 2000s, Shannon, um, and, you know, to, to set the scene, TSR is no mas. Um, they, they've kind of died out. We've got um, uh, White Wolf uh, just pretty much everywhere. Um, what's the next big uh, landmark for us? Where's the next uh, um, uh, sign that we're going to see? Uh, the next big landmark is Gen Con 2000. And Gen Con 2000 comes about... Dungeons and Dragons 3rd Edition is released. You know, it's been 26 years since the uh, original D&D. This is the first one that I say is a really big milestone for the whole industry. And it's not necessarily because of D&D 3E, though D&D 3E certainly offers a new, more tactical uh, type of gaming than we'd seen before. But it's the, the D20 uh, trademark license and the open gaming license. And suddenly... 
everyone can produce D&D games for the first time in two and a half decades. And everyone does. Yeah, they sure do. <laughs> and this makes the industry the, you know, most successful that it's been since probably the 80s. It creates the biggest influx of uh, new publishers ever. And that is because of not just uh, D20, but also we're starting to see PDF technologies. Uh, we're a year out from RPG now appearing. I think we're two years out from drive through RPG appearing, but we've already got people able to distribute those. Uh, the Wizard's Amulet is one of the first D20 products, and it's a PDF only that's meant to uh, you know, oh, wow. be a uh, teaser for an actual published book. Um, so we get those together, and suddenly we have this huge burst that takes over the whole industry. And just like uh, CCG does, CCGs did in the 90s, it pretty much knocks everything else down if it wasn't really big. Yeah. You're saying White Wolf is all over, but actually by 2000, they're, they're considerably weakened. Um, Are they? The late 90s, they probably were on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, I, I Maybe Designers and Dragons talks about the specifics of why, uh, but I know they like have had a publishing program, which they put out amazing classic books like, you know, the entire library of Michael Moorcock, uh, the entire uh, New Han uh, series from Fritz Lieber, but apparently doesn't do very well and gets cut down, you know, very quickly. Uh, Mark Reinhagen leaves the company as a result. Uh, and so by the 2000s, they're putting out their last new games, um, for the original world of darkness and they're about to change over to the new world of darkness. And I just don't think they've ever had quite the same influence then. And, you know, since then, you know, they've been sold off a few times and, uh, yep. but still in the zeros, if, if you do look at top sellers, you do find white wolf and vampire on that list, but D 20 is going to totally rule the start of the decade. And for the first time, wizards of the coast, now the publishers of, uh, D&D, D&D generally, it, it kind of shows most of the inflection points of the decade. Because we get 2000, suddenly everyone's publishing D&D stuff. We get 2003, and suddenly uh, Wizards of the Coast publishes D&D 3.5e. Very little notice to any of their partners. Definitely not noticed to most people publishing D20 things. Just barely different enough that it causes people to be concerned about... Uh, whether older supplements are compatible. And a lot of people find they can't sell things, possibly that they published the same month as 3.5e. Wow. And uh, we start to see the whole D20 bust as a result of that. Uh, people realize that though there's been a lot of great stuff published, there's been a lot of bad stuff published, and maybe buying everything isn't you know what's desired. And then again in 2008, 4e comes out. By this time... You know, D20 isn't really a huge focus in the industry because it's never recovered from the uh, 3.5e bust. And so if people are publishing using the D&D game system, they've now stepped pretty far away. They're using OGL. Um, and, you know, I think Mutants and Masterminds from Green Ronin is really one of the last big survival stories from that of, you know, how they were able to take advantage of that. So 2008, when they come out with D&D 4E from Wizards of the Coast, it's no longer a catastrophe for the industry, but 
despite being a really great tactical combat game, it's not what people expect from D&D. And so right. it starts to cause the whole industry to slide for a couple of years. And so I think one of the big stories of the Odd Ots is how much influence D&D still has to impact the entire industry for good and for bad, and they do both. Right, right. Yeah, we see both of that during that period of time. Um, there's been a lot of reflection since, I think, on 4E. Um, in, in your research, what do you think is kind of the top lines, the both sides of it? There's there's people that, you know, that just tear it to pieces um, to still to this day. Um, do, you, do you think that that's deserved? I mean, you kind of hinted that you thought there was some innovation there. Yeah, um, well, I, I, I'll preface this saying, I worked with Rob Heinsu for about a year at Chaosium. He's someone I consider a friend. I think the game was innovative. I did not like it at the time. Mm -hmm. I do like it now more. And I think the reason I did not like it at the time is the same reason a lot of people did not like it at the time, which is it was not what they expected from D&D. And even more so, it was a really big change from 3E. You know, we had all of these people who re-entered the industry because of 3E and the huge D20 boom, and suddenly they're disappointed because the game that they want to play is no longer being published. That creates one of the other huge trends of the industry, which is Pathfinder, of course, which, you know, second time uh, any other company eclipses D&D sales, it's going to be Pezo and Pathfinder a couple years down the road around 2012, 13, 14, when D&D mm -hmm. shockingly stops publishing. Um, I, I've grabbed a quote from Rob at one point in which he said that he thought the major misstep that they took in making D&D uh, 4E was in making a dramatic change to the game system and the setting at the same time. And Makes sense. That if, if one of those had happened, they might have gone away with it. I'm not sure on that uh, because I have seen huge backlashes against either of those. Yeah. Um, Champions uh, is always one of my big touchstones for when there was a huge backlash against a game system change. That was in the 90s when they went over to the fusion system from their traditional uh, hero game system. And uh, you can find any number of uh, setting changes, which have really upset people. One of the earliest I remember being what I mentioned already, which was Mega Traveler, where they suddenly shattered the Imperium and people found they couldn't run quite the stories they wanted to anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it um, it's funny because, you know, again, as I'm talking to a lot of people, Shannon, I'm discovering that as much um, poo-pooing is done on 4E, I'm also shocked how many origin stories um, on the next generation of gamers are like, that's what brought them in. Mm -hmm. and, I'm, and, and I'm starting to hear people saying, you know, yes, 4E was bad. I didn't like it and so on and so forth, but it brought a lot of new players in. Um, and then, you know, the, it, I've heard people, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, attribute 4E, five, the success of 5E wouldn't have happened without 4E. Do you think that's a reasonable uh, assumption or statement? I, I haven't heard that before. It's very interesting. If, yeah. If, that if it was, it was because of a reaction um, to, hey, we got something back that was more like what we wanted, and hey, we haven't had original D&D products for two years, and now we do. <laughs> um, I, I think, I, I feel like uh, Rob eventually was vindicated uh, when he uh, worked with Jonathan Tweed and he put together 13th Age. And 13th Age uh, uses a lot of the ideas a lot of the mechanical innovations of uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons Fourth Edition, uh, and it won me over. 
And wow. so I, I feel like as soon as you got it away from the D&D name, I think a right. lot of people, and 13th Age, it's not D&D 4E. It just uses some of the innovations. It's, it's a, you know, next step of the, the game system. It's, it's an innovation of itself. Um, but I think uh, that really shows it was the name. That, that was the mm-hmm. only problem. It's a hugely innovative game. It does some great things. I love tactical combat games. Uh, I love the D&D 4E system as it was used in the uh, board games that were put out at the time. There was a Legend of Drist, uh, uh, Temple of Elemental Evil I'm actually playing right now. Um, and uh, th- those, I think, proved what a great and interesting tactical combat system it was. Now, um, it, where do we start to see what I would consider the modern indie scene? So the things like the Forge and um, you know things like that. When does that start to appear and become something? Yeah, uh, it starts to appear in 1999. Uh, Ron Edwards puts out a game called Sorcerer. I think that was the Apprentice edition he puts out. He puts it up online. You can send him $5 via some uh, awkward means because we didn't have PayPal or anything at the time. And uh, then he'd send you a copy of the game. Uh, He's the one that uh, wrote GNS Theory, which uh, is the first real um, breakdown of, hey, we have gaming games, narrative games, and simulation games. Uh, And he also uh, writes um, System Matters, which is another article that says, hey, what we really want to do is we want to create these games that aren't just generic games, but that are games built for specific systems, like King Arthur Pendragon did and Over the Edge and so many others that I've said were proto-indie games. And so from there, he creates the Forge, uh, uh, and he starts having Forge booths at uh, uh, Gen Con and mm-hmm. creates this whole amazing community of you know individual creators who are empowered now both by his creating this community and by the new PDF technologies that we've seen. And uh, we see a couple of really notable uh, games come out. I think one of my early touchstones is Dogs in the Vineyard by uh, Mm -hmm. Vincent Baker, where uh, he certainly shows that system matters in creating this, you know, very moralistic Western game, which is very different from anything else and uh, is another one of those games I looked at and I said, wow, I would love to to play that just because it sounds so you know, amazingly evocative. And, and the other one that ends out the decade is Fiasco by Jason Morningstar. And Fiasco is wonderful because it's this very episodic game. You know, you sit down, four hours, whatever, you play a game. It uses, you know, some randomizers in an interesting way to create, uh, you know, shifts and kind of change what you're doing. It creates strong interactions between people. It Between it and Dogs in the Vineyard, I think... Uh, we've seen this real uh, evolution of these indie games within the 2000s. And by the time we get to the 10s, a lot of these ideas are going into the mainstream. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, when does 5e, 5e drop? Uh, 5e drops in 2014, but I'd step back and say, hey, there's one other really big milestone before that. And that's the OSR. Uh, the OSR, uh, old school renaissance, are something else. There's not a lot of agreement on exactly what it means. It also starts around 1999 uh, when people start wanting to talk about these older games and really comes to the forefront after D&D 3 kind of throws out these old AD&D ideas. And, you know, it's not the same backlash we saw from 4E, but it's a very similar concept in that there's people saying, hey, these games that I loved 
aren't there anymore. Actually, one of the uh, originators of uh, the OSR, his game of choice was basic D&D and, you know, the world of the known world, Mistara. And so for him, his game stopped uh, being available in 1994 or so when basic D&D faded away. But now finally we get the internet. It's fully uh, uh, available to many more people. We get PDFs and they just start creating these communities where they start publishing new adventures freely. Dragon's Foot is one of the uh, big, big original ones. And it's just got piles and piles of PDFs of, you know, new adventures you can play for AD&D. Um, and so by the end of the decade, we get uh, uh, this concept of re- retro clones. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's uh, Matt Finch who comes up with this idea. And the idea of a retro clone is, hey, we, as so many people have already, use the OGL in a way totally unexpected with Wizards. The OGL was totally a story of unexpected consequences. Uh, Wizard just thought people were going to publish adventures for them, and then White Wolf got out and put out a monster book before Wizards of the Coast got out theirs. They're the first of many, many publishers to eat Wizards of the Coast lunch in a way that Wizards of the Coast did not expect. So right. Matt Finch says, hey, all of this D&D um, material is now in uh, available under this license. You know, ideas like armor class, hit dice and stuff that before I would have been cautious making a game about because, you know, maybe these would fall into derivative copyright, but they've put it right here. And uh, so he says, why not use this instead of producing a new version of D&D 3E to publish a new game version of another game that I loved? In this case, it was AD&D. And uh, Matt Finch uh, is a lawyer, and so he is very concerned about getting this precisely right. And so he, unlike most later retro clones, um, is very cautious about what he can include. He says that if things are um, fundamentally drivable as mathematical formulas, you can include them, that if they have more original thought than that, then you can't. And so, mm. like, uh, the game he eventually produces, uh, Steward, Steward Marshall's the one that actually gets it over the finish line. Uh, the game they, they originally produced, it's not quite AD&D because like, maybe the experience charts are slightly different because the experience charts weren't quite mathematically derived. There's a couple of classes he decides he can't include because there's too much original thought. Bard, monk, I'm not quite sure which one's off the top of my head. But he comes up with this whole idea of retro clones. Um, the next year, Daniel Proctor... Uh, he starts out producing some Osteric uh, supplements, and then he decides he'd prefer to have a retro clone about uh, BXD&D because I think for many more of us, BXD&D is, is where we started playing than AD&D. Right. It's much more likely. I played both, but started with BXD&D. And so he puts out Labyrinth Lard, which is uh, a BXD&D retro clone, and he then is able to take the next step, and whereas... Um, Finch and Marshall and their original uh, work on Ostrich were very much about this kind of fan community. Uh, Proctor instead says, hey, you know, let's publish this stuff. Let's get it out to the masses. And he, have, within a few years, has uh, Labyrinth Lard in his second game, A Mutant Future, which is BX D&D, but using Gamma World backgrounds. <laughs> yeah. He has those in game stores within a few years. And uh, when uh, Matt Finch uh, does his next game, which kind of completes out the uh, trilogy of uh, original retro clones, that's Swords and Wizardry, which eventually goes on to be 
published by Frog God Games, suddenly this whole idea of the OSR is this huge uh, publishing field besides being this fan field. They're, they're both still there. Uh, and uh, two years later, we get D&D Classics, uh, where uh, Wizards of the Coast, uh, who has... Um, we're 2012, 2013 by this point. Wizards of the Coast is no longer publishing D&D 4E. They're looking for ways to maintain the mind share and possibly maintain some uh, uh, income. Uh, mm-hmm. So they start publishing the PDFs of all of the old products to uh, uh, drive through RPG four to six a week. Uh, I, I actually supported them through the first few years of that writing product histories for a good chunk of all of those. Wow. Uh, which I'm now working on producing publishing into books. That's, that's the other big project I'm working on right now. Um, so coming into uh, D&D 5e, we have this whole stream of OSR, old school gaming, and uh, Wizards of the Coast, either purposefully or accidentally, has embraced it through uh, the D&D Classics uh, website and uh, through public reprinting some uh, classic stuff. Um, uh, and so we come into uh, 2014, we have D&D 5e, and it's, to certain aspects, certainly it feels like an old-school D&D game. So um, we have a tiny bit of indie in there, too. Uh, indie has always been really focused on innovating mechanics and uh, figuring out how those uh, can create new types of story. I-, I feel like those are the two stories of the indie, the in- mechanical innovation and the narrative. And so we have like the advantage and disadvantage dice in right. D&D 5e, which uh, feel to me like something we've never seen in D&D before. I'll know that they came out of the indie industry specifically, but they're the exact type of mechanical innovation that you saw in there. So in the odd odds, we, you know, kind of saw D&D take over the mainstream and we saw indie and OSR uh, both appear as new streams of design that become uh, somewhat noticeable publishing forces, especially as we go into the 10s. And then they kind of all come together in D&D 5e. Very interesting. So when 5e hits, um, it's my understanding that, you know, it, it it was a meteor, right? It just, it, it exploded. People got back the D&D. What they loved about D&D is back again. Um, and it sounds I didn't even think about or even was had an awareness of uh, the, the OSR movement that was putting all the kindling down for for Wizards at the time. Um, what What is happening when we go to the indie scene? So if we go back to what Ron was doing with the Forge and then uh, what was it, Storytelling? or the story there was an offshoot from that i can't remember what it was called um another group um yeah i don't have it off the top of my head yeah i can't remember. it was the storytellers or the story group or something along those lines oh, do you have yeah. a sense of what was happening with them um and and kind of that movement um during that time well the the forge either has disappeared is or, or is on the verge of disappearing we're not getting forge booths anymore um by by the 2010s but what we have seen is that uh, an increasing number of these people are publishing professionally. And I feel like Fiasco was the first one in 2009 that really made it out into the mass market. And, yeah. you know, it's an easy game. It's an evocative game. And it's also a really pretty game. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think 2009, that suddenly pushed uh, the indie movement to really be fairly mass market. A year after that, we get Apocalypse World. Uh, Apocalypse Apocalypse World, um, it introduces this whole idea of everything being entirely character-focused. We have these 
playbooks that describe different character classes, and we don't have skills anymore. We have these, I don't quite want to say freeform because it's not the player choosing them, but we have much more descriptive, you know, what these uh, different types of characters can do. Uh, and so it's madly uh, innovative and it's madly influential. It's created a whole new series of indie games that's practically its own subcategory. Uh, Dungeon World uh, gets out there 2013, a few years later, and it does amazing on Kickstarter. Uh, that same year, Fate Core comes out from uh, my friends over at Evil Hat, and it does a equally amazing. Um, yeah. I think uh, Fate Core when it came out, I think it had about 8,000 people uh, contributing to it, which at the time was probably a record for a straight RPG game. You, know, mm -hmm. you always had the miniatures, which uh, did did better than the book category. Uh, it's been eclipsed now, of course, but you know, 2010 to 2013, we just see these huge explosion of indie games. And after that, I, I feel it goes much more into the mainstream. It was already going into the mainstream in that all types of games, they're talking about things like resource management and, and other mechanical uh, innovations that largely came out of the indie scene. Um, in, in recent years, it hasn't felt to me that the indie games are quite as big of an individual um, stream, but so much of it's in, in the big games. You know, I, I feel like Mutant Year Zero, that it has a lot of indie designs. And in, in fact, I know that the designer talked about some of the indie games that uh, influenced him. Yeah, it's it, it's pretty amazing, and um, the, you know, so the two two big things that I keep getting keep coming up is obviously PDF technology, but the other one is Kickstarter, and and just what Kickstarter did to put RPGs where they are today. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that that had a huge influence on 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 the proliferation? Absolutely. Um, I I think uh, you walk down through the twenty uh, first century, and you have. Uh, a couple of really big uh, technical innovations. You have PDF, which lets it dramatically lowers the uh, uh, barrier of entry into publishing. You have Pod, which keeps that lower uh, uh, barrier of entry and lets you produce professional games. Right. You have Kickstarter. Kickstarter lets you take the next step where you can actually go back to offset press, uh, not just the print-on-demand technology, uh, because whereas the first two were printing innovations, uh, this new one is a marketing innovation, I feel right. like, and an amazing one. Uh, Kickstarter lets people publish who couldn't otherwise. It lets them publish things they couldn't otherwise. And I, I feel like Kickstarter is the main thing that's uh, uh, allowed a lot of the international uh, publication that we've seen in recent years that, you know, Freya Ligon and John Ringen and Riot Mines, the only reason they're in the U.S. is because of Kickstarter. I think that's a legitimate. It was fascinating. We had Luke on the show, and one of the things that Luke told me that I had not known before is that to this day, um, uh, RPGs have the highest funding percentage of any category on Kickstarter. Um, and, he, and according to Luke, it was not even close. 
uh, like, you know, twice as high. Um, and, you know, part of that, I would assume, is because the the funding, the funding goal is a lot less on an RPG than it is on, you know, Simon putting out a miniature, you know, a game with 500 miniatures in it. Um, but I still thought that that was fascinating, that of all the categories of Kickstarters, the highest percentage of reaching their funding goal uh, was in the RPG industry. The, the other thing I found very amazing about Kickstarter is how much it has grown. I think the first year I wrote about was maybe 2012. And I was very excited to report that uh, there was a game that had raised ten or twelve thousand dollars, and uh, the the year after that, I started my hundred thousand dollar list. Where every year at the Designers and Dragons column on RPG Net, I list out all of the games that have made over a hundred thousand dollars on Kickstarter. I think there were ten or so. Uh, Isn't this, that amazing? This uh, the first year, and this last year, I, I practically wore my fingers bloody trying to, you know right up all, was it 50, 60, 70, 80? I don't remember. There were, you know, 20, maybe over 200,000. It was phenomenal. It's, I was worried a little bit at the start that we might see a Kickstarter boom and bust like we have with almost every other boom in the industry. Thinking we're probably not going to at this point that it's just a new distribution uh, and marketing methodology that has proven very effective for our particular niche. Yeah, now something that was interesting, and uh, both Shane Hensley brought this up on the show, as well as Steve Jackson really made a big point about this, was, um, and it was really Steve that I think that spent the most time on it when he was on, was um, his concern about the, what he called the, the garbage pile. Um, and he, he expressed a concern that, you know, that as great as Kickstarter is, what it, what it's turning into is just everything has to be, everything's the new, right? And and what in his mind, he thinks that there's been some great games that have come out on Kickstarter that have you know just faded into the into the dust because there's not there's another one that's coming out the next you know the next month that everybody's focus gets on and uh, you know all of these you know hyper fundings. Um, I, I wonder whether you have any any thoughts on that or um, is that just Steve Jackson being Steve Jackson? I, I think if he's worried about that, given his position in the industry, it's a valid concern. Yeah, um, we have seen companies that have been very successful at serializing Kickstarters. Uh, Monty Cook Games, I think, is a great example. Almost every one of their major products is kickstarted. Um, I'm sure they have the funding now that they don't need to do that, but it keeps it in the public eye. And so N Numenera, which I would list as another one of the you know notable milestones of the the tens, you know, seven eight years on, it's in a second edition, and they have supplemental uh, kickstarters that are very successful. Uh, I would also say that Kickstarter is not a substitute for retail stores, that we still need to have retail stores. We need to have retail stores that are willing to carry long lines of games other than D&D, &D, and that you have to uh, keep your game in the public eye one way or another, continuing kickstarting of supplements, product lines that you get stores to carry, whatever the case is, and otherwise they can disappear. Yeah, definitely. So guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk a little bit about today um, and what the industry looks like today. I want to talk a little bit about really just the last two and a half years, because it seems like we've got a whole new era just in the last two and a half years. And also we've been hinting at it. I want to talk about what Shannon's working on now. We'll be right back.
Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that happened in the last two years is Craig started playing role playing games. So that was a big deal for the industry. Right. (laughs) And this podcast started talking about it. But um, other than that, being a huge influence, um, you know, things like Critical Role, uh, things like streaming and Twitch. uh, I'd be really interested to know um, kind of your thoughts on uh, is it as big as everybody talks about? Um, Is it changing the way people play? And um, is there anything about what we're doing now and where we're headed that uh, excites you and concerns you? So there's about eight questions. How about that? Uh, yes, 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 yes. Um, I, I said there were a number of huge innovations of the 21st century. Uh, the fourth one on the list is is the Twitch streams. They have clearly, totally uh, brought in a new, uh, in- interesting cohort of people who were not playing previously. Uh, generally, I would say I am more enthusiastic and excited about role playing now. Uh, or rather how the industry is doing now than I have been in 15 years. So, Holy cow. And I, I think the Twitches are a big part of that. Um, it, it's something that's a little hard to measure. You know, how much of the success of D&D 4E, uh, 5E is Twitch streams? How much of it is, as you said, the kindling that was laid by the OSR gang people interested in old school again? You know, how much of it was a game system that went back to what people were interest in? I don't know. Um, I, I was interested to uh, recently write a history of uh, Sin Nominee Publishing. Uh, they're one of the OSR companies that's done the best in the bass market. Their best-known game is Stars Without Number. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, last year they did a very successful Kickstarter for Worlds Without Number. It was one of the ones on my more than $200,000 list for 2020. It's amazing. <laughs> and um, they uh, had some Twitch streams from very early on uh, for the game. And, uh, Kevin Crawford, who is the, uh, publisher of Sin Nominee, he said, I could definitely see when, uh, that Twitch stream was out that I saw better sales and more interest. So that's one of the few data points where I've seen where someone's explicitly been able to say that. And that's because he's a smaller publisher though. Right. I, I don't know how small you can say when, you know, Worlds Without Number did over 200,000 a few years before that. He said in the previous two years, he'd brought in half a million. Um, so, uh, but, but that was someone who could actually say, what's the impact? So I, I think possibly at some time we'll see some studies, some analysis, not quite what I do, but if we do, I think we'll see it's important. Um, is it changing the way that we play games? Uh, and is that good? Is that bad? I, I certainly constantly see the concern, uh, of people saying, Hey, I'm worried that my players are going to think that I need to have 
the amazing storytelling skills and that they need to have the Ameri- uh, amazing characterization skills of what they see on Critical Role. So if, if I had one, hey, you know, this is a concern over it, that would be that. Whether it's a valid concern or not, I don't know. But I, I think it's interesting to see is it going to make people feel self-conscious? Is it going to, you know, make them feel like they have imposter syndrome just from, you know, running the games? I, I hope not. And if so, I, I hope we can, you know, push on that a little bit. Uh, COVID. Uh, COVID, obviously, the big change has been the total loss of uh, physical conventions over the last year. Uh, I, I, I think we are seeing the first big in-person convention this month, which is the uh, North Texas uh, Gaming Convention, uh, earlier than I'd want to go, but I, I think yeah. we're, I, I think we're within a few months of you know this becoming much much more common. I think uh, Gen Con is in September or October this year. I forget where it landed, and they're doing a hybrid model where they're going to have some. So I don't feel like that's going to be a long term thing. Um, I think we're going to see some long term. Uh, people being more willing to try virtual gaming than than they have before. I, I feel like before it was always thought second best, you know, not as good. Certainly the technology is still challenging for anything where you expect multiple people to be able to speak in an interactive manner. Um, but people are much more willing to change it. I think we're mostly going to see bounce back to in-person but for those people who can't, uh, I, I think we're going to see the virtual hanging on. I've had two different gaming groups that I used to game with uh, when I lived in the Bay Area who I've been gaming with virtually in the last year say, yeah, we're going to keep doing some virtual sessions so that you can hang on. And I'm like, well, it's nothing I would have ever expected when I decided to move, but cool. Uh, yeah. So I think we're going to see a little bit of that. Uh, we certainly also saw that COVID had uh, some notable effects on the ability to publish. Um, Kickstarters, uh, oddly, were really hot. I think it was in the last six months of 2020 that we saw like twice as many Kickstarters over $100,000 in the last half of the year as the first half. And I think that's something related to COVID. There were people wanting to see new things that they hadn't seen at cons, something I'm not quite sure. It's going to take a while to see how all of that shakes out. But we're certainly going to see changes. My guess is that the biggest one is a somewhat increased uh, desire to do virtual games. And also, I think we saw a lot of expansion of virtual gaming. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. It, um, I mean, I've got both happening. Um, I've got a small pod that I was able to start a couple months ago once, you know, people were, were vaccinated and isolated and it's been nice to return to the table. Um, but I've been streaming and I've been playing virtually and have gotten comfortable with it. Um, and I, I'm not going to stop. Um, there, and there's benefits. I mean, I have had an opportunity. Um, I'm very blessed to have patrons from all over the world and I've been having an opportunity to play with people from all over the world. And, you know, that has, that, that's something that I wouldn't have never been able to do had, had, not that happened. And to your point, you know, part of it's getting comfortable with the technology and getting comfortable with communicating um, because it's different. Uh, it, you know, it's just as different as you and I doing this interview. It's different than if we were in person. Um, but, you know, you, if you get used to it, uh, that happens. All right. So all of this historical boring stuff we're done with, Shannon. Now I want to <laughs> talk about what you're excited about now. So what what's coming out of your fingertips right now? Uh, uh, at the start of uh, 2020, I moved to Hawaii. 
and this let me make some large-scale changes in my life. So uh, four or five months later, I gave up my full-time job, and I uh, have continued to do some paying technical writing as a, a contractor, but I've also got about half of my time scheduled now for me writing. And me writing right now is, at the moment, it's 70 or 80 percent uh, Designers and Dragons, and, and the rest is uh, that uh, elf pack for uh, Chaosium. Um, and so a after the uh, publication of the second edition of Designers and Dragons, uh, I started taking notes on various companies that I wanted to write about. And a few different times, I started trying to write some of those histories. I just didn't have time at the time. And so having now writing time scheduled, and uh, I, I've started a, a small Designers and Dragons Patreon, uh, which as much as anything has been beneficial because it encourages me to create a monthly schedule and to make sure I actually get down to my computer every day, whether I'm working on technical writing or my own projects, and put in a day's work and not just go to the beach. Um, so uh, through that Patreon and these previous ideas that I, I'd had for companies that I wanted to write about but hadn't originally, uh, I came up with this idea of the lost histories, where the nice. lost histories were going to be these uh, stories of uh, companies that I didn't write about the first time. And uh, a couple of OSR companies were at the top of my list because, uh, as I mentioned, these OSR games, the first of them, Osric, came out in 2006. Uh, the third of the original Retro Clones, which was Swords and Wizardry, that came out in 2008. They were only getting into stores around 2008, 2009. You know, wasn't something that really made ripples yet when I put together the Odd Odds book. But afterwards, I could see, wow, this is this huge trend yeah. that led straight into 5e. And so those have been some. I've also been finding uh, uh, companies from throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and Odd Odds that I want to write more on. So first plan is two books of the lost histories. Um, nice. One will be 70s and 80s. The other will be 90s and Odd Odds. Uh, you know, there will be 30, 40 new company histories, uh, having, you know, new trends, new ideas, just new things that you hadn't necessarily seen. I, I love the fact that I was able to get uh, two of what are called the fantasy heartbreakers for the uh, uh, 90s book. Uh, I told you there were some things that I, you know, look at and I couldn't find anything in the written record. Those were two of the ones where the only things in the written record were reviews and very few yeah. of those. And I was able to get in touch with uh, the uh, principals of the two companies that were the first fantasy heartbreakers that were listed and able to write good histories of them. So I could talk about the whole trend, you know, what exactly they were doing, which was mainly recreating the tropes of D&D with new game systems, um, what they meant in, and how they worked or how they did. So the Lost Histories, there's a few others that are just these companies that, uh, you know, were very small but did one interesting thing. Uh, you know, I have the first company to do Tunnels and Trolls supplements other than Flying Buffalo. And I have, you know, a, a couple of the very early fantasy games. I'm, I'm suspecting when I'm done that I'm going to have most of the small pressed fantasy games from, from the 70s in there, which, you know, we talked about the bigger things previously. So those are two books. And uh, I'm hoping planning that they're going to go together with the third book, which has been the most requested book since uh, the Evil Hat books came out, which was Designers and Dragons of the Tens. And yeah. so I've written seven histories so far for it. My guess is that there's going to be 
uh, somewhere between 20 and 25 uh, bec because you're writing smaller amounts about these because these are companies that have, you know, at this moment, at the maximum, been in a business for 11 years. And so I started off with the Swedish companies, uh, and that was an amazing, uh, you know, bit of history that I learned. And uh, the thing that I love about the Swedish uh, history is the fact that their whole industry was originally based on a Chiasium book. Uh, basic role-playing, uh, our, our rather magic world, which was part of Worlds of Wonder, which used their basic uh, role-playing system, it got, you know, converted over there to a game called Rakarak Demoner, and uh, it pretty much created their whole in industry. They created a second game off of it called Mutant, which, of course, was the first edition of the Mutant Year Zero game that's now uh, put out from Freeling and totally different game system, but but the same setting of, uh, over time. Uh, Monty Cook games I've written about, and uh, last month I just started writing about two of the OSR companies. Lots more to talk about. Modifius is another, you know, huge, interesting company there. Um, I, I've got a list of more companies than I can write about to fill those three books right now. So those are three. I'm hoping that when we do it that we can put it together with a, a Kickstarter incentive to also publish all of my online articles that haven't really fit into any of the books. I've been calling that the chromatic appendix, and I've been updating it over time. So the other second major project that I'm working on is I'm taking all of those D&D classics histories that I wrote, product histories for the original books, um, consolidating them, I'm updating them, I'm standardizing them. In many cases for the early ones, I'm expanding them, and I'm going to hopefully put out a series of some number of books talking about every official D&D product from TSR and Wizards of the Coast. So, so 30 years later. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I'll actually be able to do every all of them. From my That's work, a hell of a goal, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, amazing, though. Yeah, from the work that I did for uh, drive Through and Wizards of the Coast, I have uh, over half a million words, which uh, was Unbelievable. all... Unbelievable. Yeah, I... For a couple of years there, I would have three or four histories that I would spec out every night, uh, every week, uh, for what they were publishing the next week. I'd usually spend Friday night kind of collecting all of my information from it, and I'd take my computer up to a park or somewhere, and I'd get a lot of the writing done out somewhere in the green where I did not have uh, an com online connection to, to right. bother me. Um, and so it turns out if you do that every week for four or five years, you end up with a lot of content. That's um, amazing. So the, the first step in that is uh, I'm looking into writing four books, uh, and the four books are going to be OD&D, AD&D First Edition, and the entire span of Basic D&D. So, That's incredible. Yeah, that pretty much takes us from 1974 to 1989, and then there's a little bit of uh, basic D&D that goes out through uh, 1993. And that's going to be, I think, four books. Uh, most of this is stuff that I wrote from, uh, for drive through, and so I have you know, at least the seed of everything that's needed. I've got one and three quarters of them done so far. So my current guess is that I'll get the first four done by the end of 2023 and uh then 2024 would be a really great year to uh kickstart and release them because that's the 50th anniversary 
Isn't that amazing? That's incredible to say that out loud. <laughs> All right. So unfortunately for you, I'm going to uh, be bugging you um, as that Kickstarter approaches, because I'd like for you to come on and talk about it with us. Um, yeah. I'm hoping is... we're going to have one slightly earlier than that for the Lost History and and tens books, but yeah. Well, you know where I am because yeah. I would love to talk about it. Um, uh, you know, Shannon, during the breaks, I've been I've been telling you just um, how overwhelmed I am with how generous you've been, and I just can't thank you enough. This has been uh, really an, an incredible episode, and, and has has tied the bow on a lot of the you know twenty five other interviews that I've been doing uh, recently on in the industry. A lot of my guests have come up in your conversations, and um, it's it's been it's just it's been fantastic to tie it together. So I can't thank you enough my friend. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a great set of questions and a great kind of structure to talk through a lot of interesting things in the industry. So I've really enjoyed it. I'm glad you're very kind. And uh, for those of you that sat through all of this, <laughs> I appreciate you too. Thanks for listening. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads I told my wife I had really high expectations about this episode and I was preparing <laughs> like like I, I, I was like I, but I can't tell Shannon just to tell me everything but he, you are so I, I can't thank you enough this is fantastic uh, I think your organization of it was very good gave us a way to oh. really talk, talk through everything wonderful thank you well it was inspired by your book so, <laughs> <laughs> so back at you <laughs> um what I want to finish on, if it's okay, I want to finish on with what you're working on now. So let's kind of wrap up kind of the last two, two, two and a half years, COVID, uh, the influence on that, and just get some quick thoughts on that. We don't have to spend a ton of time on it um, because um, you've been you've been dropping really good uh, Easter eggs about what you're working on now, and I want to spend time with that. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Awesome. Uh, the, the Bay Area is a place and I tell my wife who's never been but I, I tell her it's one of my favorite places to visit because it's one of the few places in the world let alone the country where you can blindfold me drop me in the bay area take off my blindfold and within minutes I'll tell you where I am it's just so distinct um I also would never want to live there <laughs> but um uh and Hawaii's gorgeous good lord still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible don't you want to join the other floor heads on the patreon discord anyway Thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.